A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online so any small business can make a change. We need a new generation of thinking. Your way of thinking. Start different at GoDaddy.com. COVID-19 patients need your help. If you've fully recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have the antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients recover. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today to schedule an appointment to donate blood. That's V-I-T-A-L-A-N-T dot Help save lives and schedule your appointment at Vitalant.org. You could help save lives. This is an ode to Napa Cabbage. Of all the cabbages on all the cabbage farms, only you have the crisp crunch worthy of our Bibigo Korean dumplings. No other cabbage would do, because no other cabbage tastes like you. We love you, Napa Cabbage. Just don't tell Green Onion. Napa Cabbage, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every hearty, flavorful Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. Hello, it's Mark Reed Edwards. Welcome back to Confessions of a Marketer. This time we have Mike Maynard, Managing Director of Napier, a B2B PR and marketing agency based in the UK. Mike describes himself as a geek who loves talking about technology. And for our purposes today, it's good to know he believes that combining the measurement, accountability, and innovation, things he learned as an engineer with a passion for communicating. Mike, it's good to have you on Confessions of a Marketer. Welcome. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Mark. Great to be on. I'd like to start with a bit of your background and how you made the transition from engineer to marketer, and then maybe an even harder transition from in-house to agency. Yeah, so um, I had a, a kind of a patchwork career. There's been no planning. I think if there was any planning, I ended up doing something different, but it's been so much fun. So I actually started off as an electronics design engineer and doing some fun things, you know, helped design uh, recording desks um, or mixing desks for recording studios. Oh, wow. That's cool. That was kind of fun. Worked with um, big, huge two kilowatt lasers that could burn holes in bricks. That was fun and also scary at the same time, if you got that (laughs) wrong. But I realized that probably I wasn't really cut out to be an engineer. I love the creative side. I love the initial design, the process of moving things into production from, you know, from the bench into production was something I, I simply didn't enjoy. It was, um, it was not something I was particularly good at. And I decided that actually what I really liked was talking about technology. Yeah. So first I moved into a role which was more technical support. So um, worked for a couple of companies in a role that's called Field Applications Engineer, which is where engineers who need technical information go if if they uh, can't find it on the web or anything else although in my early days the web really didn't exist so that was uh that was another interesting challenge i remember somebody telling me that uh, whilst we still had fax machines email will never take off as a technology <laughs> um yeah thanks to my boss for that yeah, so at least i was right about one thing in my <laughs> in my applications career and then when I was working for a semiconductor company, I had the opportunity to move into marketing. And it was a way to develop my career while still staying in the UK, because obviously a lot of the technical opportunities 
existed over in the States. Mm-hmm. So I decided to stay in England and became a, a marketing professional. Obviously, still talking about the same products. So, uh, you know, the jump wasn't huge, to be honest, from where I was before. Yeah. Well, boy, in the time you've been in the business and the time I've been in the business, there have been so many changes driven by technology, not just the products that we try and sell and market, but the way in which we use technology to market to people. Absolutely. And I think someone said to me a while back, and I think it's right, there's probably few industries that have been more affected by technology than publishing. Mm. And if you look at what a publisher used to be 20 years ago, these were guys who owned big printing presses. And if you look at a publisher today, it could be someone with a webcam in their bedroom, it could be somebody writing a blog. It's such a broad range of things that you can do to, to really be a publisher today. So I'm, I'm really excited. I think it's a great opportunity for everybody, but it's certainly quite challenging in terms of the number of channels you have to deal with today. Yeah, there's been a democratization of uh, publishing for, you know, using publishing broadly for people and for companies that used to have a pretty huge barrier to entry to get to the people they needed to get to. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Although, interestingly, in some of our markets, we see much less impact from things like social media. So, One of my friends who's an engineer said to me, they said, you know, look, we're building a product that is used for drilling for oil. So, you know, this thing is dropped down to the bottom of a deep seabed. And they said, I'm not going to post on Facebook or Twitter or anything asking for advice for this product, because if it goes wrong, it isn't getting fixed. Nobody's going down there to fix it. It'll be on so, social yeah. media by itself. It, <laughs> it'll it'll get, get its own story. But, uh, yeah. you know, so... Yeah. so where there are areas with huge potential cost of failure, then people are still much more conservative. And that applies across a whole load of industries. I mean, the, the, the oil industry is obvious because the potential dangers are huge. But I mean, we worked with companies who make fasteners, so basically nuts and bolts for aircraft, you know, and again, you're not going to tweet out, you know, what should I attach the wing with, right? You're going to make sure you get it right. So we see a very interesting spectrum of media and a very interesting range of influence as well from uh, one market to another. Yeah. Just this podcast is an example of the democratization, you know, that here, here I am in, in the States and we've got technology connecting us. And sometime in the next month or so, this episode goes live and thousands of people can listen to it. And absolutely. I mean, 20 years ago, the concept of being able to reach thousands of people was pretty alien to most people. And being able to do that with a broadcast technology, basically, you know, with voices is to me incredible. What you're doing is something we really, I don't think even thought about when I started at Napier, let alone when I started in marketing. Yeah, yeah. Seems like At the same time, there's been a shift from siloed marketing. When I started in the business 30-something years ago, there were PR people, there were marketers, there were product people, and they all did business in their silo and focused on that. And, you know, over the last 15 years, there have been social specialists. And it's just another silo that kind of grew up. And everything was organized around that. But it seems like in recent years, 
maybe five years, maybe 10 years, there's really been a focus on content development, not in a silo for PR or social or product, but broadly speaking. Why do you think that's happened? And what do you think the effect has been on clients and on agencies like yours? Well, I think you make a great point, Mark. And actually, this is one of the things I could rant about for a very long time. Go on. Go on. <laughs> rant away. So we still see a lot of organizations that are still based around these specializations. And it used to make sense because 20, 30 years ago, if you wanted to reach people through direct communications, it was either telemarketing or it was a postal campaign. And both of those were expensive and really difficult to do. Um, today, you know, if you're in an enterprise, you want to reach a large audience, you can press a button and send an email almost instantly, you know, a matter of a few minutes to prepare it. So we've gone from a situation where the ability to deliver content to an audience has become very easy. It used to be very difficult. It's now very easy. And actually, because there's so much more noise, it's even harder to develop the content. So we see people who are still organized around content distribution, which is not the difficult thing. And they've got one person, a CMO, trying to pull it all together and hopefully make the content they create work across multiple channels. It just doesn't work. And I think what we are seeing is a move towards a focus on content. You're absolutely right. And for me, it's the only way that marketing teams should go in the future. So how have you organized your agency to respond or anticipate this trend uh, that's happening? That's a, a really interesting challenge. So we've been talking about this for a while, and we previously had a very flat agency structure. I think like most agencies, you grow up, and as you develop, you have little teams informally form around clients. And then if you've got a problem, you might go and ask someone who you know has, has got the expertise. But what we realized was we had two fundamental arms of the business. One was creating content, and the other was uh, distributing content. So as an agency, we actually don't have an account management team as such. We have specialists who focus on content creation and content distribution. And then within that, we actually have a slight separation where we have a design team, a studio, and um, a tech writing team in the content creation side. So they, those guys work together very closely. But uh, typically, we're not going to ask a writer to, uh, to open up InDesign or ask a designer to start writing. So we recognize there's slightly different requirements there. And then in terms of our content distribution team, we basically have two teams, one based around what we call influencer relations or media relations and influencer relations. So that would include anything from a journalist to a blogger to a, an analyst. Yeah and a second team based around technology. And obviously, one of the things that you do need to say is you can't expect everyone to know everything. And particularly, you know, when it comes to things like marketing automation tools, there is a need for some specialization still in order to get the most out of them. Just to understand it, right? Uh, well, how, exactly. How it yeah. Works. Yeah. You know, I know at places where I've worked that have used HubSpot or Salesforce, you need to have someone babysitting it just to make sure everything's input correctly and not necessarily using it, but maintaining the kind of purity of the data that's inside it. And that's a really interesting role. We see different challenges with maintaining the data. So if we look at you know some of our mid-sized company clients, 
actually, they're pretty good. There's a sales team of three or four or five. And those guys are really invested in maintaining the value of that data. Mm -hmm. Um, And quite often, the sales team and the marketing team work together. And those guys really understand what they want out of the system. And they make sure the data is right. But when you get to a very large organization, you know, where you've got hundreds of people working in sales and hundreds of people in marketing, they're scattered all around the world, they can't, you know, really work together, then that's where we see this kind of... um, poor quality data infecting the database. And that is a very difficult job. You're absolutely right. To be able to manage that data and make sure that the good quality data always overwhelms the poor quality, that can be very tough. I was going to ask you about ROI related to tools like marketing automation and why marketers fail to get the ROI they expect And maybe that's one of the reasons. Is it because the data standards are all over the place? One salesperson inputs one bit of data into this field and doesn't do it in the right field and maybe does it as free text so that when you're looking for what your install base has uh, as their challenges, maybe you find it in the free text field and not in the right checkbox or something like that. Is that a reason why, why marketers don't get the ROI they expect? Well, I always think of that poor data as being a symptom of a deeper problem. It's not necessarily that data has to be poor. Data ends up being poor because people don't believe what they're doing when they enter the data is valuable. Mm. And the reason that happens is you have companies who say, we need a marketing automation tool, or we need a CRM, a marketing you know, automation tool, and we're going to do Facebook marketing. Right. And you look at it, you go, Why? They go because that's what everyone's doing, right? So and, it's, and it's, nobody's it's saying it. Yeah, it's not just like selling that stuff where you say you need a marketing automation tool. Hang on a second, I need to do X, Y, and Z with my clients, and can a marketing automation tool help me accomplish that? And you know, it's it's kind of taking that approach. I totally. And if you're buying a marketing automation tool. It sounds stupid, but it kind of presupposes you've got some things you want to automate. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I, I've seen companies where they bought a marketing automation tool and they just send out a newsletter. And you look at it and you think, you've got all this additional complexity and no value from it. That's where you lose the ROI. So what you've got to do is really understand what you're trying to achieve and then buy the best tools for what you're trying to achieve, not the tools that are either going to look good on your uh, resume if you go for a new job or the tools that are going to look cool internally. You want to buy the tools you need to do the job you want to achieve. If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalit.org today. So how do you advise your clients? Say they come to you and say, you know, we need to change our marketing automation or we need a marketing automation tool or we need a CRM or if they come to you and say that, do you say, hang on a sec, let's, what do you want to accomplish? What are your goals? What are your needs? And then let's find the solution. Well, another thing I'm really passionate about the agency is not diving into the doing stage straight away. So we actually have a four-step process we've developed is designed to get our team to really think about any project before they move into the execution phase. So we have two stages at the start. The first is called determine, which is really a situational analysis 
stage. And the next is focus, which is all about identifying the audiences and the messages you want to use. And actually, if you apply that pretty much anything in marketing, it works really well. So you actually can take a step back, you can look at the situation, you can then look at what you're trying to do, who you're trying to reach. An obvious example would be if you're trying to reach people and you know that they're not going to sign up, they're not going to give you the, your, the email address, then market automation isn't a great tool. You know, maybe you're better off reaching them on social. Yeah. And so it really helps to, to do that planning up front. And so we're constantly trying to make sure we really do a lot of good thinking up front. And then we move into the um, execution phase, the deliver phase, as we call it. And finally, and you mentioned I was an engineer, so I love numbers. I love data. We're always continually looking at the data, see how we can enhance our campaigns. So, you know, that's the fourth stage. And that's where marketing automation can be hugely valuable is, you know, making, doing A-B tests, making slight tweaks and relaunching a campaign. You make a fantastic point there. I mean, if you've got campaigns where you can apply marketing automation technology, it can really help. And I'm not afraid to admit there's been so many campaigns which have been A-B tested at Napier, and we always have a bit of a bet on what's going to win. I'm very often wrong. Yeah. And so are clients, and so is everyone else in the agency. You know, no one can predict it. The A-B test is the ultimate way to really find out what resonates with your audience. And the reason it resonates can be something unrelated to what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. A couple of decades ago, I was running a website for a big company and we did really early usability testing on our website. And everything seemed obvious to us. But you put a user in front of something, just like doing an A-B test, they will tell you what's right. Absolutely. And there's no there's no substitute for getting someone who's new to a platform or new to a campaign to come and have a look at it. You know, we do that. We get clients who've never used marketing automation tools to use them to get their feedback. And it's amazing that they'll point things out and you look at it and go, how did I not spot that? Right. That is really dumb. But you kind of accept it once you're used to a product. Yeah. I want to talk about account-based marketing, which is something we all hear a lot about. And I think it can be fun. You can have some, uh, you know, use some great techniques in account-based marketing that can be really effective, but it can also go horribly wrong. When does that happen? <laughs> yeah, you make a great point there, Mark, because there's loads of ways that, that account-based marketing can go wrong. And it's typically down to people overthinking things. Yeah. So a great example is crossing what people call the creepy line. <laughs> and, and, you know, you may be targeting an account. You may know everything about that account. You may be absolutely desperate, but you really don't want to do the kind of email that says, well, I noticed you visited our website yesterday and today, and you looked at these pages. And I think your boss, who's, uh, you know, called Mrs. Whoever it is, would really be interested if you did more. Of, and it's just like you can get way too over the top. People overthink it. Yeah. And I think that is one of the big mistakes is just trying too hard because actually some of the best ABM campaigns, they're very personalized, but to the person seeing them, they just feel like they're great campaigns. And that's what you want to achieve. It's not about making the person you're targeting feel that you're mentioning their company name all the time or talking about their company's industry. It's making them feel the marketing is just great marketing. And that's what you've got to do. 
and relevant, right? It's got to be relevant. And again, you can be over-relevant. You know, you can, again, try and make things too personalized. And once you, you end up doing the highly, highly personalized stuff that feels, again, creepy, you're actually spending too much time. You're basically doing a sales job. So I think what you need to do is really understand what the audience needs and then make sure you just deliver great marketing. I mean, somebody said to me once, they said, well, ABM is just good marketing with better targeting. And I think that's a great philosophy. It's making sure that the dollars you spend are targeting the customers who are going to spend the most with you or most likely to spend the most with you. That's what ABM should be about. And it shouldn't be about trying to overcomplicate it or overthink it. Do you have a rule of thumb on how many times you should insert someone's name in a message? Because that's, to me, that's when it starts to get creepy. (laughs) Particularly if you've never met them and they have no idea who you are, then continually using their name is really freaky. And I think you just got to write normally. And again, it comes from, don't overthink it. Think about it from the point of view of the person who's going to receive that communication. How are they going to perceive it? What are they going to think? And today it, it's crazy with, you know, with social media, you can feel like you met someone and know someone before you actually ever get to shake their hand because you can, you know, follow them on LinkedIn. You can see what they're doing on Facebook. You know what they do at work, what they do at home. And I think there's definitely a tendency to, to get over familiar sometimes if you're in marketing and particularly in the UK. I mean, we're, we're a little standoffish, you know, no. we to be friendly sometimes. So it really doesn't work. You have to be very careful about going from the personalized to the frankly, really cheesy yeah. because that doesn't work. I make the comparison all the time that marketing is kind of like a cocktail party. You wouldn't meet someone and ask them to marry you immediately. And that's what happens in marketing a lot. You just connect with someone on LinkedIn and all of a sudden they want to sell you a marketing automation solution or or some big product. The world doesn't work that way, but social people think social media does. Absolutely. I love that analogy of a cocktail party. It's great. You know, I think people should be thinking about their marketing along that those sort of lines. You know, are we meeting at a cocktail party? Is this a first date? Or, you know, have we been going steady for three years? Yeah. It's a very different situation. And your analogy is brilliant. That's really good. It's all contextual, I think. You can certainly ask a client or a prospect you've known for a while to do some things that you wouldn't ask of someone you were just introduced to, like click on this, tell us what you thought of the white paper that you read. That's not creepy if you have a relationship with them, but if someone has just clicked on it, you don't want to ask them about that. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. You know, trying to do a, what did you think of the white paper survey is not going to work. Whereas perhaps having a couple of questions at the end of a webinar Mm -hmm. would be a great opportunity. And we've had some great feedback on webinars by asking a couple of follow-up questions. So it's all about context. It's all about context. And I think you've got to be careful that you don't overstep that mark. Yeah. Because once you turn a, a potential customer off, it's going to take a long time to win them back. Yeah. And that brings me to my final question. We're communicating with people. That's one central truth about B2B marketing that is rarely discussed because in that term, it's B2B, business to business. And really, it's person to person. And I'm interested in the past year, since March, certainly, 
with people under stress, working from home, all kinds of economic and social uncertainty. How has B2B marketing been affected? I mean, clearly everyone's been affected. It's been a tough year for most people. And we've seen all sorts of impact. I think the first thing I'd say is that marketing has been much less effective than sales. What we're seeing with our clients is the sales teams are really struggling. You know, great salespeople used to go and visit a big customer. They'd go for a particular meeting and they'd come back with three other opportunities from people they'd met whilst walking through or had got informal introductions. And that's all gone. And that's really tough for those great salespeople. So I think a lot of them are looking more towards marketing to drive, you know, leads and opportunities they can then work on because it's hard to reach people. It's tough for us to reach people as marketers. But it's not impossible. I mean, certainly social and email, owned media on the web, all of this is working really well, but it's much, much harder for salespeople. And I think, although it's been difficult, one of the great things I have seen with a number of our clients is, you know, rather than being kind of a bit of a a wall between sales and marketing, that's been broken down now. And sales and marketing teams are working much more closely together. And for me, that's a good thing. You know, ultimately, as a marketer, yeah, you know, you can look at something like a click-through rate and go, that was good, but it doesn't really tell me anything. But if I have a salesperson saying, this really helped me make this particular sale, that makes my day. I mean, that's ultimately what you want to achieve as a marketer. And that collaboration between sales and marketing can often be tense. And maybe the last six, eight, nine months has uh, brought marketing and sales closer together, which is a good thing. I totally agree. I mean, I think we've seen clients where there has been some friction and that friction has been reduced. We've also seen clients who've had great partnerships between sales and marketing. We've, I mean, we've got clients where marketing reports to local sales teams, which is a great way to get marketing to really think about sales and put sales at the front. But even there, we've seen that relationship improve, you know, through the last year. So I'm really positive. I think this is one thing that will be good that comes out of the COVID crisis. And I think it will actually last and it will have a big impact on on how marketing is done in the future and, and also how people do sales because there's been an increasing move to let marketing cover a larger part of that customer journey because the salespeople can't get those informal contacts now. And I think, you know, once salespeople are able to go back and visit customers, it's going to be great because you really will have marketing and sales working very closely together at the same stage of a sale. And those companies that really buy into that are going to see a huge benefit, in my opinion. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the future. And certainly if you have anything more to add about what the future of B2B marketing looks like in 2021, once the the pandemic is over, hopefully <laughs> will be at some point. Do you think that collaboration will, that has happened under duress in 2020 will flourish in 2021? Yeah, I think it will. I mean, it's going to be tough. There's going to be speed bumps on the road for sure. But I think in most organizations, the relationship between sales and marketing will remain much stronger than it has been in the past. Yeah, And I also think one of the things we have seen is that with everyone sat at home, there's probably even more content being put out there than we've ever seen before. And to me, there's going to be a real race to identify quality. And ultimately, from the audience point of view, quality is what helps them do their job. Yeah. So I think there'll be 
a lot more focus on marketing, developing things that will help the company's customers do their job better. And that could be information, it could be content, but it equally could be online tools. And we've seen you know, a number of clients do that as well. So I think it's a hugely exciting future for marketing. You know, and obviously, like everyone, I'm looking forward to getting out of the COVID lockdowns. But uh, equally, I'm really looking forward to uh, marketing in 2021 and beyond. Yeah, that's a great way to wrap this up. Thanks for joining me, Mike, all the way from Chichester in West Sussex. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Mark. All right, that does it for this week. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Reed Edwards, executive producer, writer, and host of Confessions of a Marketer. Shep Salau is my producer, helping put together the shows every week. Annalyn Timball is my assistant, and she helps with guest relations and getting everything scheduled just right. Thanks, Sheb and Annalyn. Confessions of a Marketer is a trademark of Podco Media Networks, and this episode is copyright 2020. Stay healthy and see you next time. You stay home for the greater good. Secondhand smoke doesn't. It drifts through cracks in walls, air vents, and sink drains, spreading toxic chemicals that can damage lungs. Secondhand vape also puts your lungs at risk, even with the fruity smells. Protect yourself and the people around you from these secondhand dangers. Learn how at tobaccofreeca.com.